We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. In today's episode, we will cover the life of one of Islam's most venerated and enigmatic scholars of the last century. Abdullah Yusuf Azam was a Palestinian Islamic scholar and author who is credited as being the founder of modern-day defensive jihad, or al-jihad al-difariu in the Arabic. In the Quran, there are three types of jihad. The jihad against yourself, the jihad against Satan, which are the greater jihads, and the jihad against an open enemy, known as the lesser jihad. The jihad Azam had implemented in the madrasas in Pakistan and to the young Mujahid in the Afghan Services Bureau, called the Maktab al-Kidamat, for which he helped to create, will be carefully eludicated in today's episode, for it would help shape to create the radical fundamentalists we have witnessed in the modern period. On November 14, 1941, Abdullah Yusuf Azam would be born in the small town of Al-Silla Al-Haritya, located in the northern west bank of Jordan. Its farmlands can be lush with produce as the warm climate saturates its fields. The village was under constant guard from the British during this period and often met with light resistance from the Mujahid. The British mandate had took control of this area since World War I. The British had unjustly suspected the elder Yusuf of holding secret meetings with local Mujahid. His father, Yusuf Musta Yusuf Azam, who was also a farmer as well as a butcher, despised the fact that the British had begun to implement colonial ideals as well as being quite brute to the villages and villagers of Palestine. This would lead Yusuf to now take up arms against his foreign occupiers. It was the first time the young Abdullah Yusuf saw his father in an armed struggle. It would shape his life going forward. By November 29, 1947, the United Nations generally assembled would approve for a partition plan for Palestine. This prompted an open rebellion by Arab Palestinians 
And by May 14, 1948, Israel would declare its independence, leading Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon to prevent the establishment of a Jewish state by entering an armed conflict in which it would fail. In the following year, the armistice agreement would begin creating the borders for Israel. The Haganah, a Zionist paramilitary organization, would begin displacing over 700,000 Palestinians during this time, most of them fleeing to the West Bank and to the Gaza Strip in Jordan. In the local mosque in Al-Silla, Azam would notice many foreigners from Syria and Iraq who would hold secret meetings to help during the Palestinian struggle. He also noted that many of them were not very religious at all. And the young Azam would also later note that the true meaning of Islam would not enter the battle of 1948, in which this was the reason why the Arabs had lost. During that struggle, the Muslim Brotherhood had begun participating in the war. This was seen as a noble act by many in the region. Azam, a very deeply religious person, even at age eight, while his religiosity was unusual during the 50s and 60s, the young Azam was quite astute, very insular, and didn't make many friends as he was young. During this period, Arab nationalism was dominant ideologically throughout the Arab world. And by 1954, Azam would join the Muslim Brotherhood into the Jordanian branch. Their beliefs were to influence Islamic society through education and grassroots activism. One of the leading members was Assad Abid al-Hadi, who would have a major influence throughout Azam's young life. Al-Hadi would encourage Azam to speak before people, and soon Azam would start giving short lectures. He'd also been an ardent student in Islamic law, Sharia, and the Quran. He would often spend many long hours into the evening reading the Quran over the years. By 1960, he would become a teacher in the remote area of Adir in Jordan. By 1962, he would enroll at the Faculty of Sharia at Damascus University, where he would marry Samir Abdallah Awatila, where they were born three sons and five daughters over the course of their relationship. In 1966, Azam would graduate from Damascus University while Israel would militarily occupy Al-Sila, Azam's home. Forcibly evicted from his land, the Azam family, like many others, would enter the West Bank. This would be the last time he would have set foot in Palestine ever. Azam was officially a refugee. This would help shape Azam's political mindset from this point forward. Through the forced eviction of his home, in which over the course of his life, he would never have a true home where he could raise a family in. And by June 5th of 1967, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan would try to invade Israel in hopes of overthrowing the nationalist government. They were led into the attack. It failed. The effects of the Six-Day War would forever be felt throughout the Arab world. This defeat helped delegitimize Arab republics and secular ideologies as during this period, Arab nationalism was prominent throughout the Arab world, led by Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser. The loss was pivotal and helped to give rise to transnational Islamism, 
replacing secular Arab nationalism over the next 15 years. Islamism began to attract many looking for a new beginning as Israeli occupation, along with Western influences, uh, began to occupy more of Arab land, increased suffering of the Palestinian people witnessed by the Islamic public as a whole. The war also displaced Palestinians as over 300,000 left for the West Bank and Gaza Strip. In 30 years, over 1.3 million Palestinians were forcibly displaced. This left a resounding effect on Azam. Azam always felt that the Jihad and Palestine were first and foremost a religious duty. He believed all Arabs who were able to fight against Israeli occupation, as Azam believed Arab rulers exploited Palestine for popularity. Azam despised the Palestinian Liberation Organization led by Yasser Arafat, as he saw them as a socialist ideology, yet held Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood in a more beneficial respect due to their goal of spreading Islamic school of thought. One of the primary influences of Sa of Saeed Qutb, of one of the primary influences of Abdul Azam was Saeed Qutb from Egypt, a Brotherhood member who had written many books that included the spread of Islamism to Arab republics and inviting Muslims abroad to live in Arab lands due to the poisonous influence of Western democracy in which he saw as an affront to Islam itself. Muhammad Abd al-Rahman, a leading member of the Muslim transnational movement of the Brotherhood, became impressed with Azam over the years. He would take Azam to many countries where he would hold lectures while learning how to conduct speaking engagements before large crowds. Secular Arab governments such as Syria and Egypt would start cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood. In 1965, President Gamal Nasser began cracking down on thousands of Muslims, as many were arrested and tortured in Egyptian prisons. Another event that took place in young Azam's life would be the execution of Saeed Qutb. Egyptian authorities had arrested Qutb as he was suspected of plotting a coup against the Egyptian government. On August 29, 1966, Saeed Qutb was hanged. His death would reverberate throughout the Islamic world and he was immediately considered a martyr, and his authored books became the primary reading material over the next 40 years. Azam was crushed by this crime of the Egyptian government and dedicated to fight against secular Arab nationalism by giving dawah, calling Muslims back to the purer form of religion practiced by the Prophet Muhammad and the early Muslim community to anywhere he preached. The Fayyadeen referred to various military groups willing to sacrifice themselves for a larger campaign, in this context, to Islam. These sects were beginning to prop up in countries like Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq, where Islamism was never a problem before. A revitalization of new Islamic thought was beginning to take place over Arab nationalism. After the loss of the Six-Day War, many Arabs saw secular ideology as the reason for the loss during the conflict. By March of 1968, the Fayyadeen began embarking on guerrilla conflicts located on the Jordanian-Israeli border, which saw casualties on both sides, but mainly against the mighty Israeli IDF. The Fayyadeen insurgents began training weapons 
handguns, small arms fire from countries like Egypt and Syria. However, the Fayyadim were mainly leftists, and ideology Azam was pronounced against. During Azam's time in Jordan, he would witness clashes between the Fayyadim and the Islamists. The conflicts would attract attention from the Jordanian government led by King Hussein. In 1970, Azam would begin holding lectures at mosques in Ibrahim, Jordan, which would begin which would be highly critical of communism. King Hussein tolerated the Islamists for fear of internal retribution, which would harm his citizenry. However, by September of 1970, that would change. The Fayyadin insurgents began a series of assassination attempts on Hussein while hijacking four airliners at the Dawson Field Airstrip. The Population Liberation Front of Palestine were the primary adversaries who campaigned what is now known as Black September. At the same time, Azam was highly critical of the governments of Jordan and Syria with their reputation for cracking down on Palestinian youth. Azam came away impressed by the youth who participated in the Israeli conflict. Azam needed the right opportunity to give them a real motivation for religious jihad, which would come in a future date, one that would be entirely unexpected. And by 1967, Azam moves to the town of Baha in southwest Saudi Arabia. He was offered a position at a local institute for religious sciences, the Al-Mahad Al-Ilmi. These schools were to bring Wahhabi principles to local provinces. It was not uncommon for Muslim brothers from the Levant to teach at these universities. It was here that Abdullah Azam became exposed to the school of Ibn Hanbali and Wahhabism. Salafis are literal, not pragmatic. They view themselves as the original Salaf, those who were the original predecessors of the earliest Muslims. They are also less politically motivated. By 1971, Azam moves to Cairo, Egypt, to receive a doctorate in Islamic law at the prestigious Al-Azhar University. The president, Anwar Sadat, unlike Nasser, was quite liberal to Islamism. Sadat began releasing most of the Muslim Brotherhood members from labor camps, with most senior members freed by 1974. The Muslim Brotherhood quickly rebounded. At the end of 1974, Azam had finished his thesis at the Al-Azhar University and passed with the highest possible grade. During this time here, Azam forged many friendships, some that would help shape the latter part of his life. During the course of his stay in Egypt, Egyptian intelligence had closely monitored Azam while in Cairo. In 1973, Azam returned to Adman, Jordan, where he had become a teacher of Islamic law at the University of Jordan. He was an exceptional speaker, as many from neighboring schools came to listen to him. His home would become a public setting as many students from his university would come and visit him. Azam's ability to teach the Islamic law to Islamic youth would pay off in the future. He was called the Sayyid Qutb of Jordan, high praise which humbled Azam as he considered Qutb the primary influence of his life. Azam had also quickly risen in the Jordanian Brotherhood and was selected in the group's consultative council, the Masjid al-Shura, a governing body of 40 members. The Brotherhood was actively against the leftists and King Hussein was over everly grateful as he considered the leftists, the Fayyadin, the enemy. 
Hussein tolerated the Qutubists, which were the Islamists, for now. Azam accepted the Muslims living under non-religious governments should be motivated to push Dawah. During the 1970s, Azam would travel around the world. Young Islamists were now studying at foreign universities, doing lectures and so forth. Islamism was beginning to become on the rise. And in 1975, during Hajj, Azam was invited to speak at the Council of the Great Scholars about the dangers of polytheism in the form of man-made legislation. As Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab had fought against grave worshiping, so should the Muslims against man-made laws Azam had declared during the lecture. Azam would openly begin criticizing the Jordanian government in 1978 as being too un-Islamic, accusing the government as not being very much interested in the Palestinian struggle. Jordan, the Jordan government, would begin cracking down on Islamist-speaking engagements from Azam and the Muslim Brotherhood. During this time, the Muslim Brotherhood may have pushed Azam out of Jordan since they had a tentative relationship to operate freely. Azam had suspected of this and had written a document in 1980 complaining to the Shura Council about the Muslim Brotherhood and himself that he felt excluded from activities and ignored in his meetings. However, he would still display loyalty to the Brotherhood, even though they had neglected to allow him to speak at further engagements. As fate would befall Azam again in 1980, a letter was received. It came from a Muslim Brotherhood professor in Egypt. Muhammad al-Muslib had invited Azam to come to Saudi Arabia and teach at the most prestigious school in Islam the Abid al-Aziz University, at its faculty of Sharia. Azam needed the work, and him and his family desperately needed financial stability and accepted this offer without hesitation. Pan-Islamism, a strand of Islamism aimed at promoting Muslim solidarity, was beginning to take shape in Western Saudi Arabia. Just 13 years ago, Azam was first introduced to Wahhabi ideology while teaching here at the Al-Mahad al-Ilmi. He never forgot the lesson. Pan-Islamism was motivated by three basic ideas. One, all Muslims are one people. Two, the Muslim world are under assault by non-Muslim forces. Three, Muslims in different countries should help one another. Pan-Islamism began with the regional and domestic Saudi political developments under the promotion of the Wahhabi ideology. The Muslim World League, a pan-Islamic nonprofit organization, or in short, NGO, based in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, that aims to clarify the true message of Islam by advancing moderate values, played a major role. And during the 1970s, Islamic charities grew and the Gulf oil boon gave the Muslim community large funding opportunities. While living in Jeddah, Azam had published many works. It was during his teaching studies at the Abid al-Azaz University that another prominent figure would become influenced by Azam's lectures. Osama bin Laden, a young Saudi and son to Muhammad ibn Awad bin Laden, the construction magnate to the largest construction firm in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Bin Laden Group. Bin Laden had enrolled at the King Aziz University to achieve his bachelor's at business administration. However, he would oftentimes sit down while Azam taught Islamic law 
during his speaking engagements, he quickly became enamored at his lessons. Azam, however, became quickly transfixed at joining a true Islamic Jihad. Once again, fate would befall Azam, this time from a letter which came from another Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood member, Kamal al-Sataniri, who enticed Azam to join a conflict which was taking place in Afghanistan. In the letter, it is said, quote, Abdallah, your place is there, not here. Pack your bags and trust in God, end quote. Azam gave some thought to the proposal, and al-Sataniri promised to meet Azam there, which prompted Azam to indulge in the offer. By September of 1981, Azam had flown with his family to Islamabad International Airport, not knowing that al-Sataniri had been arrested shortly by Egyptian authorities and jailed. He was killed under the excessive use of torture. Azam, however, would take residency with Abid Rabib Rasul Sayyaf, a legend in Peshawar and leader of the Northern Alliance. Sayyaf had known Azam from previously learning about Azam while he held lectures at Cairo. Sayyaf allowed Azam and his family to stay at his large farming home in Peshawar and told Azam about the demise of al-Sataniri. One of his neighbors was a prominent Saudi official named Mohammed Salim al-Hamoud, who collaborated with Azam about jihad projects in Peshawar. However, Azam needed to find a place of employment and was given an offer to teach the faculty of Sharia at the University of Islamabad. Many foreign fighters would begin traveling to Pakistan to join the fight against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Many leading Afghan leaders of the Mujahideen would begin traveling to the Gulf to garner support to the conflict. One such Mujahideen leader was Jaladin Haqqani, founding leader of the Haqqani Network, would begin sending representatives to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to establish information offices. Afghan Mujahideen also began publishing many works and publications to spread the message of an Islamic awakening taking place in Afghanistan. One of the very first groups to respond to the conflict were, of course, the pan-Islamists. They responded primarily due to the enemy being a secular invader committing human atrocities on Islamic lands against the Islamic people. Following them were Saudi and Gulf donors who responded to the Mujahideen message. Wealthy Gulf Arabs had traveled to Pakistan to give money to relief workers of the Mujahideen. Some of the funding went to Lahore and Islamabad, while some of it went to the Jamaat-e-Islami, led by Mian Tural Muhammad, with one of those donors being Osama bin Laden, and Gulbuddin Hekmatar, the primary leader of the Hizb-e-Islami, who had the largest community of Mujahideen out of all the warlords, who had also received funding from not just the Saudis in the Gulf, but also from the CIA, the Pakistan ISI, and the British MI6. Many Gulf and Saudi donors had come to visit Peshawar to engage with leading Afghan Mujahideen leaders to speak at a future conflict. Some of these leaders had some of the largest contingents of tribal fronts in the war. Yunus Khalis of the Hizb-e-Islami Khalis, Abid Rabib Rasul Sayyaf, leader of the Northern Alliance, and Itihad al-Islami, Ahmed Galiani, 
of the National Islamic Front of Afghanistan, Bern Hamid Rabani of the Jamaat-e-Islami, and Gulbuddin Hekmatar of the Hezb-e-Islami Hekmatar. The Muslim World League, the largest Islamic organization in the world, would also send its primary delegation spokesman, Mohammed al-Mujahdab, along with Saudi donors, but was shocked to witness the internal strife between the warlords regarding financing, logistics, and unimportant pettiness. This would leave Azam totally disengaged with the politics surrounding the Soviet-Afghan conflict, vowing to never engage with the Afghan warlords. This also led to the constant strife and disagreements of having foreign fighters, Arabs, to join and fight alongside the Afghans. The Afghans considered the Arabs unqualified militarily. However, Sayaf and Haqqani disagreed and invited Arabs to join them. Haqqani would become an important ally to Azam, who was seen as an outsider. It was during 1983 that Mustafa Hamid tried to operate a foreign recruitment office called the Global Islamic Office. However, Hamid was lacking not just in resources, but also financing the operation. Abdullah Azam would notice that the Afghan Mujahideen were largely fragmented due to petty differences ranging from ideology and strategy, as well as their leaders' personalities and selfish ambitions. Azam was keen to unite the Afghan Mujahideen and later said, quote, I had a passion to unite Hekmatar and Sayyaf because I saw them as the most honest and able to lead the jihad, end quote. Meanwhile, Pakistan's support for the war was of the primary concern that the Soviets would invade them as well, using the Pakistan ISI to act as a financial conduit and funding them with money and weapons to Peshawar and over to Kabul. Pakistan ISI Director General Akhtar Abdul Rahman and Pakistan ISI Director General Hamid Gul had deep involvement with the Afghan Mujahideen. With bin Laden acting as the Saudi intelligence directorate conduit, bin Laden immersed himself into the conflict, using his father's company's trucks to build roads and ditches, which has risen him to popularity within the Mujahideen. The United States CIA station in Islamabad also began acting as a conduit for funding the Mujahideen fighters. Although Pakistan ISI would later claim their involvement was minimal, it would later turn out to be the opposite. And by the 1980s, many foreign Arabs from the United States and Gulf were descending onto Pakistan. Inexperienced and without proper support for housing and food, Azam had feared that American NGOs were trying to westernize Afghanistan and began resenting their presence. Azam soon began expelling them. American NGOs began noticing that many of the critiques were Arab foreign fighters who openly insulted them. Slowly but surely, anti-Americanism was beginning to give rise in the middle of the decade. Azam, meanwhile, traveled to Peshawar and lobbied senior Saudi clerics and the Muslim Brotherhood for assistance in the war. Meanwhile, the CIA and the United States sent their own delegations to try and influence more Afghans to join the war. As National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter, Zygmunt Brzezinski, Quoted to the Mujahideen. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. 
He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The CIA, the Israeli Mossad, the Pakistan ISI, the British MI6 began funding and training many of these foreign fighters in camps located in Pakistan. And it was during this period that Azam began noticing that the Arab foreign fighters were coming in record numbers at the Peshawar. His idea was simple, to begin operating an office to properly train and help educate these Mujahideen, while the CIA used a covert operation called Operation Cyclone, sending billions of dollars of military funding and aid to the, to the Pakistan offices in Islamabad and Jalalabad. They had to act secretly and not know that the Soviets would notice them in the long run, which would cause a bigger war, maybe even a World War III. Azam then traveled to Saudi Arabia to perform Hajj and invited Osama bin Laden, Wail Juladeen, and Jamal Khalifa, the brother-in-law to Osama bin Laden, to a meeting. The meeting would be operating a recruitment office for Arabs. It would be called the Maktab al-Kidamat, or from the English, the Afghan Services Bureau. It would serve two purposes. One, to have Arabs serve the Afghan Mujahideen. Two, to be the starting point for Arabs in the service of Afghans. The Bureau would work in a variety of domains, logistics, education, and medical support. Azam knew Bin Laden had the financial backing to help kickstart the operation and plead his case furiously. Bin Laden came away enthusiastically and agreed to help financially support the operation. Azam then invited Abdul Rasul Sayyaf to agree to the operation, which were to take place in Peshawar. Sayyaf and Bin Laden came to a total agreement. At first, the Bureau existed in the Muslim Student Union located in the University of Peshawar. This became infeasible due to the constant stream of Arab fighters. Bin Laden then rented a house in Peshawar in November of 1984. The house was named Abu Hamza Bayat in honor of an Afghan Mujahid killed while doing a mission in Afghanistan. In 1985, the Bureau adds another house, the Bayat Abu Uthman. This was used for his visiting donors and VIPs. Bin Laden then sets up another house, the Bayat al-Ansar, then another guest house, the Bayat al-Shahuda, and by 1988, the Maktab al-Kidamat would have eight buildings operating within Pakistan. Azam would be named the Emir, its leader of the bureau, with Mahmoud, Mahmoud Salim acting as deputy leader or the Munir. It would compromise of two committees, one, the bureau committee, the Jamat al-Makab, and the Consultative Committee, the Masjid al-Shura. The Consultative Committee would have as members Osama bin Laden, Wail Juladin, Abu al-Bara, Abu Hadhafa al-Urduni, 
Nur al-Din, Abu Dawood al-Urdini, Abu Makdu al-Sharkasi, and Abu Hajjo al-Iraqi. Soon, other committees would help shape the bureau, consisting of Reception Committee, Education Committee, Scholars Committee, Orphans and Wives Committee, Medical Committee, and the Media Committee. The Bureau would be subsidized anywhere between $200,000 and $300,000 annually throughout the decade. Azam, however, had a holistic view of the conflict. He believed that education, medical care, and logistics were as important as fighting. The Bureau's main goal was to help receive Arab volunteers worldwide, offering them food and accommodations, and also to collect valuable information inside Afghanistan. However, running the Bureau would become problematic, as many employees would be inexperienced and also from all around the world, which would impose bureaucratic problems. By 1985, these internal problems had to be dealt with immediately as it threatened the existence of the operation. Many meetings between the deputy leaders and the committee leaders addressed many of the problems facing the Bureau, thus saving the base of operations for the time being by replacing many high-ranking members. The Maktab al khidmat however, played a major role in the mobilization of Arabs during the war. Azam would begin traveling, first to Saudi Arabia, where he solicited tens of millions from Saudi donors, then by going to Kuwait, where he knew a strong Muslim Brotherhood branch existed, as well as several charities to openly support the Mujahid. By 1987, Azam traveled to the United States and spoke at the Muslims Arab Youth Association in Kansas City and Detroit. Azam's lectures began circulating in tapes throughout the world, especially in Southeast Asia. He was a fantastic orator and energy-driven speaker, always wearing his traditional Afghan clothing and parkour hat. However, during his lectures, Azam's audience were left to decipher what Mujahideen actually meant. According to Tamim Al-Adani, a Palestinian who traveled to the United States alongside Azam, the Americans had interpreted Azam's use of the Mujahideen incorrectly. Quote, I noticed that some people in America un misunderstand the word Mujahideen. They have had bad information or bad understanding of what that word is. They think Mujahideen are people who attack people or hijack planes, aircraft, like those who hijacked the Kuwait aircraft. We are against this completely. This is not jihad. This is nonsense. Jihad is fighting for the sake of Allah to protect our religion. Those who are doing hijackings, it's completely against Islam, end quote. However, Azam oftentimes breached his own rules of conduct during war. If non-combatants mingled with the enemy, all are to be killed. In 1988, Azam gave a lecture at a mosque in California where he was asked a question, quote, is it permissible to take revenge on American Jews present in America who give the verse, kill them wherever you find them in the Quran? Azam, of course, it is permissible. Azam had hoped after the war that Afghanistan would be set up as an Islamic state, which would be used as a military base for an Islamic army to recapture all of the lost Islamic territories and unite them as a transnational caliphate. Azam wanted an immediate and comprehensive militaristic response to liberate Afghanistan 
and Palestine from the Israeli government. He was also hostile toward secular Arab governments. However, he was positive toward the Saudi kingdom. He was apprehensive toward them as well. During the middle period of the 1980s, he had close affiliations with takfiris, radical Arabs who saw secular Arab leaders as infidels, and he began closely embracing Wahhabi Islam, the school of thought that he learned while living in Saudi Arabia. While he did espouse anti-Western views, he was quite adamant about disallowing violence against the West as well. He stated that Islam and Judeo-Christianity are in a never-ending conflict. Azam was convinced that the United States was trying to weaken Afghanistan so they could move on to Palestine, even though the Afghan Mujahideen were quite thankful to the West for its support. Azam was known as al-Mujahid, the Islamic scholar of jihad, fighting at heart. He considered that spiritual preparation was a prerequisite for success in battle. Afghan Arabs, whom were pragmatic, disagreed with Azam. They did not share Azam's view of a spiritual conflict. Azam was not favored by the Arab foreign fighters who saw the conflict in militaristic terms. And by 1985, when Abu Hajir al-Iraqi took over as the executive director of the bureau, he tried to understand the views of Arabs and beefed up military portfolios. Bin Laden was one of the more prominent foreign fighters who grew restless of Azam's view of the war and was visually seen on the front lines against the Soviets in the battlefield. Bin Laden and al-Iraqi wanted to use the bureau to become more aggressive militarily in the war. Together, bin Laden and Abu Hajir al-Iraqi developed the al-Masada camp, bringing in known Egyptians like Abu al-Aziz Ali, Ali Muhammad, Abu Burham al-Suri, a Syrian Muslim, to begin military training the Arabs at al-Masada. The al-Masada camp's main function was to serve as a boot camp for new recruits and to teach in small guerrilla arms, uh, arms conflict. At about this time, another individual began his travel to Peshawar, who fled Egyptian persecution and imprisoned torture. Dr. Ayman al-Zawahari of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad came to offer his skills as a doctor to the wounded Mujahideen. He started his services at the Red Crescent in Kuwait. He would also have a major influence to not just Azam, but later to Osama bin Laden. By 1986, bin Laden and another Egyptian, Abu Ubaida al-Banshari, noted for his military commandeering, traveled to Afghanistan to begin locating new prospects for a bigger training camp. They found a potential spot in the northern Patkia province. This camp would be named by bin Laden as al-Masada, a bigger camp than the previous camp of al-Sada. The camp specifically resided in Jaj, the Pakia province. Joining the camp were some of bin Laden's closest associates from Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and Abu Obeda al-Bashari, Abu Khalid al-Masri, Abu Hajid al-Iraqi would begin training large contingent of Arabs. This would be the only camp that would train only Arabs. All the other camps, specifically in Peshawar and Islamabad, and previously the camp that I mentioned before, the Al-Sada camp, 
had Afghans and Arabs. This camp was a bit different. It basically trained Arabs in small combat training arms and building bombs. By February of 1987, the al-Masada camp was up and running with al-Banshiri acting as commander and al-Iraqi as its chief instructor. Arabs at the al-Masada camp became more hardline in their beliefs. Most of the prominent members would later become the founding members of al-Qaeda. This is where the name the base came from, as al-Masada was the training piece, the training base for the members of al-Qaeda. Early documents about the formation of al-Qaeda are found in the Tariq Osama and the Tariq Musadat collections, the Harmony documents. They contained scanned documents from Bin Laden's inner circle from 1987. They were found by Bosnian authorities in 2002 in the Sarajevo office of the Benevolent International Foundation, an Islamic charity with links to Bin Laden. These documents would later become public knowledge during the trial of Enam Arunut, a Syrian-American who pleaded guilty to using charitable donations to support fighters in Bosnia without the knowledge of his donors. There were three factors for the emergence of Al-Qaeda. One, the demand of high-quality military training from Afghan Arabs. Two, the victorious battle of Jaj. Three, running al-Masada as a proto-organization. Al-Qaeda, named the base, was shorthand for the people associated with the base. According to the Tariq Osama documents, one document in particular, August 11 document, taken from August 11, 1988, between a meeting between Abu Rida al-Suri and an unknown sheikh, the agenda was the shaping of the new military work, a three-tier training system consisting of general camp, a special camp, and a base. The major early influences for the formation of al-Qaeda were the following. Osama bin Laden, Abu Ubaidah al-Banshari, Jamal al-Fadl, Abu Ayyab al-Iraqi, Abu Hafs al-Masri, Abu Khalid al-Masri, Abu Hajir al-Iraqi, and Mamu du Mahmud Salim. In the beginning, al-Qaeda did not have any clear or objective geopolitical agenda. Thus, the movement did not make any declarations against any governments or their secular religious mindsets. What gave the bin Laden camp of al-Masada legitimacy was the Battle of Jalalabad. The Pakistan ISI, along with Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto and the CIA, had pushed the Mujahideen to fight against the Soviets and Afghan nationalists by allowing imprisoned Mujahid who were in exile in Peshawar to transfer to Jalalabad. The battle was intense, but the push never came. The Afghan Arabs suffered a terrible defeat. Many Afghan Arabs fragmented from the Bureau and Al-Qaeda, creating more uncontrolled, impractical core of men who wanted action. They did not care about consequences. Meanwhile, Hamid Gul would call them the Jalalabad School of Jihad, who practiced increased militarism and the total disrespect for authority. There were theological differences between the Afghans and the Salafi Arabs, with Afghans coming from the 
Hanafi school of thought and the Salafi, the Hanbali school of thought with the Arabs. The foreign fighters experienced while in Afghanistan came in three life experiences. One, thrills and hardships of military life. Two, pleasures of companionship. Three, sense of religious purpose. The Afghan-Soviet war was responsible for creating the jihadi culture, which exists still to the present day. In the forms of music and video, it exemplifies the nature of the Mujahideen. Azam had five main sides which were hostile towards him. One of them, the Pakistan government, which were concerned about Afghan Arabs' military activities. The Saudi Salafi establishment, disliking his Muslim Brotherhood orientation. The revolutionaries in Peshawar, which found him too moderate. The allies of Gulbuddin Hekbatar disliked Azam's rapport with Ahmed Shah Massoud of the Northern Alliance. And of course, the Israelis, which became alert to his involvement with the Palestine Intifada. Azam had became too obvious in his movements. While the end of the Soviet-Afghan conflict came to a head, numerous associates, uh, associates and even from his family tried to get Azam to hire a bodyguard, to which Azam replied that he would rather die a martyr than become afraid of the world. On November 24, 1989, just as the last trucks of the Soviet Union began leaving the capital of Kabul, Abdul Azam was with his two sons, Muhammad and Ibrahim, in his car. They were off to the Saab Alai Mosque, where Azam often preached. It was 12.20 p.m., and he was crossing the Great Trunk Road, an Arab road, where a roadside bomb was detonated. The bomb was concealed under a small bridge that took cars over a ditch. Two devices, one on each side of the bridge. It killed them immediately and tore the car to pieces. Azam's burial, Azam's burial that evening was a major event. Massive outpouring of sympathy, even from outside of Pakistan, was noted. There were many suspects that were initially blamed. The CIA, Israeli Mossad, the Pakistan ISI, the revolutionaries in Pakistan, as well as the Saudi GID. Even Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Swahari, who once told false rumors regarding Azam, in his lectures, were blamed for his death, as unproven suspicions suggested that they wanted to take over the Bureau. However, within months of his assassination, the Maktab al-Kidamat fell into disarray. Contact with its American representative in the United States, headed by the Al-Kifa Refugee Center in Brooklyn, New York, with its unsolved murder of its director, Mustafa Shalabi. The main suspect? Omar Abdel Rahman, the leader of the Gamma Islamiyah in Egypt, who ended up taking over the Al Farouk Mosque. In 1995, the Maktab al Kidamat closed down permanently. This leftover funding, which it received, had dried up during the Gulf War of 1991, had begun. With Azam's death, an increasing growth in Islamic sects began, which led to the continuing fragmentation of the Afghan and Arab community still seen today. The rise of Islamism can be seen with the inability of Arab governments to include the Islamists in national politics, who began looking at the international stage for operating space. That stage now includes the ongoing conflict between the secularists, the crusaders, and the Jews, which allow the intelligence communities to interfere with all the parties involved 
to induce and manipulate for geopolitical agendas. Azam's words regarding his devotion to jihad in Afghanistan can be read in his quote made while he came to Peshawar in 1981. They would become prophecy from the man who came all too familiar with fate throughout his life. Never shall I leave the land of jihad, except in three circumstances. Either I shall be killed in Afghanistan, killed in Peshawar, or handcuffed and expelled from Pakistan. That is the end of this episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. <laughs>